First Peter, uh, obviously the first letter of the Apostle Peter, uh, to the church as they found themselves scattered about uh, what is modern, uh, what, what was then Asia Minor, modern day Turkey and that sort of uh, area. He wrote it to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, uh, lots of churches, local churches that were meeting in these cities throughout Asia Minor of the day, uh, where uh, they had come together as uh, as believers, were worshiping, had had formed churches. And now Peter writing this letter of encouragement to them. Most scholars think that that Peter wrote this letter sometime in the early 60s A.D. So that would be about 30 years or so after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, it's later on in Peter's life, he would have died as a martyr not long after that, just probably a few short years uh, after that. In the early 60s, persecution of Christians in the Greek world, or the Roman world at the time, had not yet reached a fever pitch, but it was increasing. Uh, by the time that Nero became emperor in the mid-60s, which uh, most people, uh, most scholars believe is the, the emperor under which Peter and uh, the Apostle Paul both uh, died as martyrs. Uh, but leading up to that point, most of the persecution, most of the pressure, most of the trials that the church was facing uh, were in terms of social oppression and social pressure for being a Christian. People were believing in Christ. They were gathering with the church. They were uh, uh, refusing, denouncing their old life of uh, pagan worship and that sort of thing. And now they're praising this uh, different God, this, uh, this God-man named Jesus Christ. And as such, people were losing their jobs. They were losing their livelihood. Uh, they were being uh, oppressed and ostracized by the society, by the culture in which they lived. But it had not yet gotten to the point uh, where the Roman government was rounding Christians up and feeding them to the lions, burning them at the stake, that sort of thing. But the pressure was increasing, and such was the world into which Peter was riding. We hear often, especially uh, in, in this year being an election year and entering into a new election cycle, we've probably heard it from most, if not all, and far too many politicians who said, we are living in uncertain times. And they'll, they'll, point to, they'll point to all the things that are going on in the world. The, the economy is up and it's down and it's backwards and forwards and all around. And, and there are things on the social and moral landscape of, uh, of our country and around the world that, that are just all kind of, uh, you know, every which way and that sort of thing. You've got uh, ISIS and the threat of uh, radical Islamic terror and those sorts of things in the world. And we have politicians saying we live in uncertain times. Well, try telling that to a generation ago or, or, or to the people who lived two generations ago or to people who lived 2,000 years ago. The, the truth of the matter is there has never been a time in which we have been living that has not been uncertain. Certainty only exists from the perspective of eternity. And so long as we live in these bodies, in this world, in this time, we do not have that perspective of certainty, right? So we will always be living in uncertain times, yet there is a certain hope for uncertain times. There is a living hope in which we can rejoice. There is a way in which we can welcome uncertainty. We can even welcome suffering with open arms in times of uncertainty. And this is what Peter is telling to the church, which is experiencing uncertain times in his day. Hopefully by now you've found 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 3 through 9 this morning. This is what the Apostle Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we look at this living hope in which to rejoice, the way in which we can welcome suffering with open arms, we, we must first look at the nature of this living hope. The nature of this living hope. You won't have notes up on the screen this morning because, like I said, um, uh, we just didn't have time to do that this morning. So find blank space on your worship guide and we can write these things down. First of all, the nature of a living hope. I wanted to use the word the ontology of a living hope, um, but, but I figured if, um, uh, if I didn't really quite know what that word meant, then you guys might not either. So I chose nature. Um, the nature of a living hope. What is this living hope made of? Where does it come from? What does it consist of? What does it look like? First of all, we see in verse 3 that its originator is God, right? Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter tells us it is God Himself who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's not a hope that we attain for ourselves. It's not something that we purchase or, or grab at or, or get for ourselves. It's something that God has given to us. He has caused us to be born again into this living hope. There are very many things that are significant about this wording. The first is what we just said, that it is God who does the work. We we know from places like Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 8 through 10 and, uh, and, and other places that it's not our, anything that we do to achieve salvation, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. Faith is, is as Paul, I think, would say, the anti-work. Faith is not doing anything for yourself. Faith is trusting that you can't do anything for yourself and that someone else has done everything that, that you do need to be done for you on your behalf. Faith is saying, no more Stephen, all about Christ. I can't do it, but he has. Right? Faith is saying, not me, but him. Faith is the anti-work, and, and it is through this anti-work that we receive salvation, salvation that God has made available for us in Christ's death and the resurrection. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's also interesting, and we'll get to it before I get ahead of myself too much, that this hope is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a neutral hope. It's not a hope that's just kind of floating around. It's a living hope. There's something... something to use the word I didn't want to use, ontologically different about this hope, right? There's, it exists in a completely different way. A lot of times we talk about hope in, in, in terms of things that we hope for later. I, I hope to have a job that pays me X amount of dollars so that I can provide X, Y, and Z for my family and have this sort of retirement and such and such standard of living, right? But my, my hope is not a living hope. It's just a thing that I have, a thing that's out there that may or may not be possible, may or may not be certain. But the living hope, the, the hope that we have uh, in Jesus is not a hope in something, but it's a hope in someone. And that hope in someone is not a dead someone, as we just celebrated last Sunday at Easter, right? It's a living, risen Savior who is our someone in which we hope. We've been 
cause to be born again into a living hope, but not hope that's just an idea or a thing, but hope that is grounded and found in a person. The originator of our living hope is, is God, but the, the source, the, the way in which it comes is through God's mercy. Verse 3 again, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. What is mercy? Very simply, mercy is a, uh, a characteristic or, or, or a desire in a person to care for the needs of others. Uh, synonyms of that word mercy are compassion or pity. Right, Looking to the need that someone has, the depth, the, the, the magnitude of somebody's need in their life and desiring to meet it for them. Having compassion for, for the need that they cannot meet and, and desiring to meet it for them. Causes us to ask this question, how is God's gift of spiritual rebirth, of being born again into a living hope, how is that gift of God, how is that an act of mercy on his part? My guess is you probably already know the answer, right? Each one of us, like Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, Paul says, the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The problem is we are in an infinitely pitiable situation in our sin, right? We who have sinned, who have rebelled against the one holy, perfect creator God, have made ourselves enemies with God. We have separated ourselves from him. We are unable to, on our own, have a relationship with this God because of the things that we have done in our life that have pushed him, attempted to push him off of the throne of our lives and put ourselves there in that place. Because of our sin, we deserve condemnation. We deserve damnation. We deserve eternal punishment and eternal separation from God because perfect holiness, perfect justice, perfect good, and perfect love can have nothing to do with infinite sinfulness. But that's what we are. We are infinitely sinful in and of ourselves. That's an infinitely pitiable situation to be in. And God, rather than, rather than leaving us in that infinitely pitiable situation, has made a way for us to be redeemed, to be rescued, to be saved out of it. It is an act of God's mercy that we are caused to be born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus. Praise God for his mercy. The originator of this living hope is God. The source of this living hope, the way in which it comes is his mercy. Then, then there's the means of its purchase, how it is attained, how it is made possible for us. The means of the purchase of this living hope is Christ's resurrection. Verse 3 again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise God, we just celebrated in a, spe in a special way Easter last week. And, and we celebrated in a special way, even though we do it every single Sunday, but in a special way we celebrated the resurrection of Christ last week. We saw its, its historicity, its historical viability, that, that the fact that, that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross and was raised again from the dead is, is an historically indisputable fact. And that is incredibly good news because if he can do that, then he can do just about anything, including purchasing for us salvation and a hope in which to believe, in which to find ourselves. The hope is a living hope precisely because it is a living God who has purchased it for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20, as Paul is reminding the Corinthian church about the resurrection, this is what he says to them. <clears throat> Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's pointless, and you are still in your sins. Then those who uh, also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, in conjunction with Peter, if Christ is not raised, if Christ is not alive, then we have no hope that is living. We have no hope on this earth in which to, to place anything, in which to look forward to. We have nothing to look forward to. We have nothing to put our faith in. We have, we have nothing to get us through the day if Christ is not raised. But, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised. Christ is alive. There is a hope that is living that we can look forward to, that we can place our faith in, that we can have to get us through the day. The means of the purchase of this living hope is Christ's resurrection. And without his resurrection, we have no hope. But praise God that through his resurrection, we do. And it is a hope that is sure. It's, it's, it's unfailing. It's unfading. And it's, uh, and it's alive. So the nature of this living hope has God for its originator, God's mercy as its source, Christ's resurrection as its purchaser, its guarantor. Uh, but finally, let's look at its, its characteristics, which I think can be summed up in, in one word, uh, which are eternal. Uh, the, this living hope is eternal. Verse 4, Peter says this, You have been caused to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power, verse 5, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter uses these really, um, uh, in the Greek, they're really interesting. In the English, they're they're just words that we know. Interesting words uh, uh, about uh, what this faith looks like, what this hope, excuse me, looks like. It's imperishable, right? Meaning that it doesn't go away, it doesn't die, it doesn't doesn't corrode, it, it doesn't disintegrate, it doesn't crumble into pieces. It's undefiled, meaning it's perfectly pure. There's nothing bad or wrong or sinful or evil about it. It's unfading. That means it doesn't ever tarnish. It's always perfectly polished. Anybody have silverware in a drawer they have to polish regularly? No, not that many. Okay, we all have, we all have stainless steel flatware, right? You just throw it in the dishwasher and it comes out. Right? But anybody's ever had to polish silver, real silver, silverware? Right? It tarnishes over time. It takes work to, to do our, this living hope, this inheritance to which we have been uh, bought and caused to be alive is unfading. And it's also kept in heaven. That means it's not kept on earth where wrath and must destroy... Ro- Wrath, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It's not kept here. It's kept in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. This living hope, this this inheritance, which is ready, uh, which is imperishable, undefiled, uh, unfading and kept in heaven is also ready to be revealed. The salvation uh, which comes, which corresponds with this living hope, Peter says, is, is not yet fully revealed to us. That's, that's kind of an interesting thing to say, Stephen. Are you saying that, that our salvation is not yet complete? And I want to say yes and also no. Okay? So, so when Christ died on the cross, 
He paid the full penalty uh, for our sin. He, he incurred and endured the full weight, the full brunt of God's wrath against sin for all men for all time. So that any who would trust in him, place their faith in him, rest their life on the promise of the gospel, would, would receive salvation. They would receive Christ's righteousness uh, in exchange for their sinfulness. Okay? And in that moment, we are perfectly and completely saved. And in that moment, we have in the past tense been completely saved. Right, Everything we've done in the past has been paid for. So we have been saved. We are saved. But yet Peter says there's still a sense in which we will be saved. So Christ's death and resurrection, our faith in him, the salvation he purchases for us, is not something that's just for one time only. It's something that extends into our past is effective in the present, and also moves forward with us into the future. There's, there's a way in which our salvation is made complete, a way in which our, our salvation culminates, it meets its climax at some other point in the future. It's a salvation that's ready to be revealed. Think about it this way. Uh, it is possible to, to be saved in, in many different ways, and let's just set aside the, the biblical sense for a moment and just think about it this way. Uh, consider that you yourself uh, have uh, are a sailor, and you're going on a, a trip, a transatlantic trip, uh, by yourself in your sailboat. Oh, that sounds like a wise thing to do. And so you, but you're an experienced sailor and, and, and you know what you're doing. So you set off across the ocean. You're going to leave from, let's say, New York, and you're going to arrive in London if that's even a thing that people do anymore. And along the way, uh, you, <clears throat> you are met with, not far off the coast of New York, you, you are met by uh, the, 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 confer- the confluence of, of two uh, hurricanes, two, two storms, two cyclones, and you're stuck in the middle. You know, you're like George Clooney on that fishing boat uh, in the movie The Perfect Storm, uh, only you're better looking because this is your fantasy and... and uh, and George Clooney's old now. So, so there you are, stuck between these two hurricanes in your sailboat, and you're all by yourself, and the winds are whipping, and the, and the, the waves are high, right? And, and all of a sudden, your sails are torn to shreds, right? The, the mast has been knocked over, uh, and, and you are adrift in the ocean being tossed about by the waves. You are in need of salvation. You need to be saved. You need to be rescued in this storm. The good thing is there are people who are very experienced, have gone through a lot of training, and they are called uh, Coast Guard uh, uh, Rescue Swimmers. Okay? So the, the Coast Guard of the United States has these uh, special uh, positions, these individuals who serve as rescue swimmers. And what do they do? They do crazy stuff like go into helicopters, fly into storms, and jump out of perfectly good helicopters into the water to save people who are drowning or in need of rescue. Okay? So there you are on the life raft because your ship has now sunk. And you're floating around being tossed by the waves. You have need to be rescued. But there are two ways in which you can be rescued in the storm. You can be rescued in the midst of the storm. And that comes when that rescue swimmer jumps out of that helicopter, plops down in the water next to you, climbs into the raft with you and says, buddy, we're going to be okay. All right, this guy's gone through a lot of training. He's got different sorts of apparatuses and other things that keep him afloat and will help to keep you afloat. He knows how to save your life in the midst of this storm. And so you are saved in that sense, in the presence of this rescue swimmer, in the midst of the storm. You are safe. You are saved. But then there's another sense in which you can be rescued, another sense in which your rescue is complete. And that is when that helicopter drops down that, that basket, that bin held by a cable into the water and you climb in, the rescue swimmer climbs in, and you're pulled up out of the storm into the helicopter and there you are perfectly and completely safe. So there are two ways in which in the midst of great trial we can be saved. We can be saved in the midst of the storm and we can also be saved from the storm. And in this life, as Peter is, is, is addressing the church some 2,000 years ago, he is telling them that you can be sure that you are saved in the midst of the storm because Christ has died for you. 
But Christ is far more than a far more than a rescue swimmer, right, who works for the Coast Guard, who's enlisted with the Coast Guard. He does far more than just jump out of a helicopter and keep us safe until the basket falls. No, no, Christ has come down out of heaven. He's taken on flesh and at the cross, he he gave up all of his life-saving apparatus to us and he himself succumbed to the, the waves of sin and death as his lungs filled with the, 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 the poison of our sin and evil and he died for us in our place. And in so doing, he made a way for us to be safe in the midst of the storm. And he made a way for us to be eventually saved from the storm. Because of who Christ is and what he's done for us, because of his resurrection from the dead and the fact that he is God eternal, we have a salvation that is secure. We have a living hope that does not change. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven. Although it's ready to be revealed, we have salvation now in this moment. That's the nature of this living hope. What's the point of it for us today? Put that in a pair of blue jeans and Nikes for me, Stephen. In this sense, this is how it applies to us, to you, to me, to all of us, right? Know today, know today, and take hold of the living hope that God extends to you in Jesus Christ. You, me, all of us are in the midst of a raging storm caused by our sin, and, and, and the only result is death, right? But, but look up to God, call out for help, trust in Christ as that one, that rescuer, that redeemer who left the safety and security of heaven, took on frail human flesh and died in our place that we might be saved in the midst of it. If you've experienced this salvation, if you've placed your faith in Christ and his resurrection, um, place also, I, I encourage you, place also your hope today for the future. Your hope for the future in that, in his resurrection, in what he's purchased for you. And, and at the same time, actively give God the glory for it. What does it mean that we have a living hope? Well, one, it means that we exercise that living hope, but it also means that we give God glory for it. Stephen, why do you say give God glory for it? Well, because Peter does. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this God? Well, he's the one that's given us the living hope, right? This, this uh, formula that Peter uses, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a formula that's repeated in several places throughout the New Testament. And it's a general uh, a formula, a phrasing for giving glory, giving honor, giving praise to God for whatever comes after it that the, that the apostle or the, or the Bible writer is, is writing. And here Peter is giving glory, he's giving honor, he's giving praise to God for purchasing us that living hope. And so when we exercise that living hope, when we place our hope in Christ, when we look to to Christ and to the resurrection, knowing that there is a final salvation that's still waiting for us, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, it's kept in heaven, it's ready to be revealed. When we hope in that, we give God glory for it at the same time. And if we're not giving God glory for it, how much do we really hope in that gift? How much do we really trust in, in, in God who has provided that gift for us? Giving glory to, to God for what he's done for us in salvation is a regular part of the Christian life. It's a necessary part of the Christian life. You cannot call yourself properly a Christian if you don't desire with every fiber of your being to give God glory for what he's done for you in Christ. And if you've not experienced salvation, if you're, if you're uh, here today and you, you'd consider yourself not a believer, not a Christian, uh, not one who's trusting in Jesus, maybe you're a skeptic. I would encourage you today to, to weigh what Peter is, is saying about who God is and what he's purchased for us in Christ against the hope that this world offers and the things that you're placing your hope in today. 
And, and in measuring the weight of those two things, in, in measuring the, the significance of those two kinds of hope, a hope that's unfading and imperishable, kept in heaven, ready to be revealed, versus a hope in stuff that only this world can offer. I hope that you would choose the greater. I hope that you would place hope in the, in the greater hope. I hope that you, you would give up the fleeting, failing, fading, uh, disintegrating things of this world and take hold of that which is imperishable and eternal. Do that by taking hold of this enduring living hope, by placing faith, placing trust with all that you have as much as you can in Jesus Christ today. As the one who has taken your penalty for, for sin on the cross, the one who has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who will be raised from the dead. He's the first one to do it, and we all who trust in him will follow. When we do this, when we express faith in this living hope, when we, when we place our hope in this living hope and trust in Christ and have faith in him in all things, then we can, we can sing along with the Gettys, that great Getty hymn in Christ alone. We can sing these words and, and sing them and really mean them. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The power of Christ in me is that I have no guilt in life and no fear in death. Right From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. He commands my destiny, not the world, not the stuff, not the money, not the house, not the girls, not the boys, whatever it is that you're looking for, right? Not that stuff. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever, ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. And when we place our faith in Christ for salvation, right? That living hope, the living hope that God has purchased for us becomes our hope. It's no longer the stuff and the money, the house, the, the clothes, the boys, the girls, the toys, right? The grills, whatever it is that you like to fill your life with right now. Now our hope, our meaning, our purpose is in Christ. And, and we don't rest in the power of money and stuff and whatever and politics and junk. Now we rest in the power of Christ. Christ who took our sin on himself, died for that sin and was raised from the dead in a way that no one had ever been raised from the dead before. And we can trust it because he's done it. He'll also do it for us. That's what our living hope looks like. But why do we have it? We have it because it gives us a, a reason to rejoice in suffering. Our living hope is our reason to rejoice in suffering. Remember that Peter is writing this letter right to the early church, not before, uh, before systematic persecution by the Roman government had taken hold, but, but still they're experiencing trouble, they're experiencing trials, they're experiencing suffering at the hands of the society in which they live because of their faith in Jesus. But Peter says you have a living hope that allows you to rejoice, that allows you to have joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the face of coming persecution. What's the reason that we can rejoice in suffering because of this living hope? Why? Why? Why can we rejoice in this? First of all, because the permanence of our living hope outweighs temporary trials. The permanence, the security of our living hope far outweighs temporary trials. Look at verse 6. 
Peter says in this, when he says in this, he's talking about the salvation that God has purchased for us, right? The living hope that we have and have been caused to be born again unto. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The Christian life is, is not a sprint. It's a marathon, right? That's a cliche we've heard all the time, right? But it's also true. It's not a sprint. It's not something that, that, that we live out in a day, right, or in a moment. Uh, the Christian life is something that is ongoing, that, that we strive in, that we, we run in, that we, we, we pursue. It's not something that, that, uh, that, that's over and done with in, in just a short moment. Like the stock market, the Christian life is a long game. Right? And those of us who have uh, investments, I say those of us, those of you who have <laughs> investments... In the stock market and those sorts of things, right? You you know that, that the stock market is a long game, and unless you're you're in the high stress uh, area of of trading penny stocks and that sort of thing, and you like jumping out of windows when things don't go well, um, you you know and you understand not to make light, but you know and you understand and, and that the stock market is a long game and it takes patience, right? The only difference between the stock market and the Christian life, although they're both long games, they're both things that play out over long period of time. So the Christian life is, is not tied to the rise and fall of economic productivity. It's not tied to the hope of growing a sum of money over the course of several years. Rather, the Christian life is tied to the one God who took on flesh to save us from the self-enslavement of sin and death so that we might gain not a, not a decent standard of living in retirement, not a, not a nice portfolio, not a robust 401k, but so that we might obtain eternal life in the presence of our Savior. Eternal life. I, don't, I think sometimes we don't, we don't fully understand the, the scope of that word eternity and, and that which is eternal, right? That means it is without beginning and it is without end. Now, in our sense, we all, all of us who are human beings, we had a beginning when, when we were uh, conceived and born, right? But God has no beginning. He has no end. And the life that he has secured for us likewise has no end. It goes on forever and ever and ever. Three trillion years from now, Right. We will still be in the presence of God. Those of us who are in uh, uh, who are in faith in Christ, who are trusting in Christ for salvation, we will be with God three trillion years from now and three trillion years from now. We will only have but trillions of trillions of more years to come after that. Right. And, and that's not even a proper way of speaking, because we still we still think in in, in terms of, of finitude and, and finality and, and limits and stuff. But eternity has no limits. Compared with the weight of eternal salvation, salvation that never ends, eternal li- to a life that never ends, even several years of intense suffering in this life seem only as a little while. If we're lucky, if you're lucky, you may live to be 90, 95 years old. That's a long time. That's a long life. I recently saw a video on, on Facebook yesterday of a woman who uh, lives in, um, in Texas. She's 105 years old, and she has watched every single Texas Rangers game. God bless her. I don't know why. Every single, especially when the San Francisco Giants are also a baseball team. She has watched every single uh, uh, Texas Rangers baseball game on TV for the last 15 years. She's 105 years old, and she just got news yes or the other day that she gets to throw out the first pitch uh, at a game uh, at, a, at a Rangers game. Right? That's that's cool, right? But it took her 105 years to get there, right? So she's 105 years old. That is a long life. That is a long life. 
But in the face, in the scope, in, in, in respect to eternity, 105 years is nothing. 105 years is faster than the blink of an eye. 105 years is less than a drop in the bucket. It's less than a drop in the ocean. Albert Einstein once said about his theory of relativity, when you're accounting a nice, when you're recording, excuse me, a nice girl, an hour seems like a second. But when you sit on a red hot cinder, a second seems like an hour. That's relativity. Um, we need to have a, a relative understanding of eternity and this life. We need to have a relative understanding of this life, this life relative to eternity. This life relative to eternity is, is but a blink of an eye at best. This understanding of, of the Christian life, keeping eternity in perspective, helps us to endure suffering and trial and uncertainty and to endure it with a real hope that's grounded in a real future. You think about it when you're at the gym, right? And, and you've been, not many of you uh, seem to perk up at this. So I'm guessing not many of you go to the gym. Suppose you went to the gym and, and there you were working out for a long time and uh, you've been there two hours. You've gone through this, uh, this high intensity interval training class. And uh, those of you, the two of you that go to the gym, you know what those are. And, um, and you're exhausted. You're beat. You can't imagine another 15 minutes on that stupid spin cycle, whatever that you're on, because it hurts and whatever. And, and it's just not comfortable. But you'll know, 15 minutes and then the thing is over and you get, you get fruit snacks and Gatorade at the end, right? You can endure 15 more minutes because of the reward at the end, right? For fruit snacks and power bars and Gatorade. Right. But when we think about our suffering in the context of eternity and what Christ has purchased for us in eternity, that then even the most severe amount of suffering on this side of the resurrection in this life is endurable. We can persevere through it. Why? Because the reward is so great. This endurance that we have, which is grounded in hope. Endurance with hope, secondly, that the reason we can rejoice in suffering is because endurance with hope leads to a pure and valuable faith. It leads to a pure and a valuable faith. Look at, look at verse 7. Peter says uh, in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? What's the point? So that, Peter says, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter uses this really, really neat picture, really neat illustration of, of what a Christian life marked by suffering does in our lives. What, what, what it does for us, what it, what it produces in us. Here, here he compares our faith to gold. My, my assumption is that many of you here this morning are probably wearing gold jewelry, uh, either in a wedding ring or in a necklace or earrings or whatever. Right? And, we, and we, we buy gold and we wear it because it's, it's lasting and it's, it's, it's enduring. It's a valuable metal and it looks pretty, right? But gold in its raw form, when it's first mined out of the earth, is not the kind of gold that you see in your ring. Right. It's, it's gold that's that's mixed with and has grown around other impurities, other other minerals, other elements, other rocks that surround it. And in order to get pure gold, the kind of gold that actually is worth something, the kind of gold that you want to wear on your finger and around your neck and put in your ears to kind of get that kind of gold. You've got to you've got to do something really intense to it. You've got to put it in this in this little pot called a crucible and, and a crucible is a 
uh, iron pot that, that, that is constructed to, uh, to withhold, uh, withstand extremely high temperatures in the thousands of degrees without melting, without breaking down. And you put that raw gold, that gold that's mixed with impurities, into this crucible and you put it into a fire. But in order to melt gold, you've got to put it into a fire of over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Or you think Phoenix is hot. Okay? Gold, gold, because it's very dense, it's a very dense metal, uh, when it's melted, it sinks to the bottom uh, of that crucible. And, and because it's more dense than anything else, that it's, all the impurities that it's intermixed with, all the impurities float to the top. And then so you can take that crucible out of that fire after a certain amount of time. And while the gold is still liquid and, the, and what's called the dross, the impurities that have flowed to the top, while all that's still liquid, you can skim off that nasty stuff off the top and you pour that gold out into a mold or whatever it is that you want to do with it. And what do you have? You have pure gold. Pure gold, gold that's worth something, gold that people want to buy, gold that people covet and long after and, and want to put on themselves, right? Peter compares the Christian faith to raw gold being refined as though by intense heat through the persecution and opposition of unbelievers of the world. Peter is saying your faith in the process of suffering, in the process of trial, is like that gold being being melted and, and being removed of its impurities. And it's hard and it's hot and it hurts. But what's the result at the end? Pure, perfect, priceless incomparable faith at the end of it. But Peter goes a step further and he says that this faith is, is not valuable like gold is valuable. Even gold, even, even though it's purified by fire of intense heat, and, and even though when it comes out it's incredibly pure and, 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 and valuable and all these things, even gold perishes. You don't take care of gold, it'll tarnish. Right? You, you beat it up enough, it'll bend and break and twist into something that it wasn't before. He says, your faith is not like that, though. If gold, which is priceless in this world, in this world, can be, can be tarnished and all that, that, that's one thing, right? But, but even, as, even as durable a gold, uh, metal as, as gold is, a substance as gold is, far more durable, far more priceless is the faith that, that, we, that is produced in us through suffering. What's the final end result of this pure faith? Verse 7. This is the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious, precious than gold. Even though it perishes, by, though it is tested by fire, uh, your faith may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revela- revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and glory and honor of who? Me? Praise for Stephen because he was so faithful. Right? Uh, glory for Stephen because he endured all that trial. Right? No, praise and glory and honor to who? God, the Father. And when? When Jesus comes again. Peter is saying, look, your suffering may be hard right now, but what it's producing in you is, in, is of incomparable worth to anything else that this world can offer. Okay? And at the end of it, all of that, that faith that is produced in you is really, it's not even for you. Right? It's, it's produced so that God can show how glorious he is. How marvelous he is. How worthy of praise and honor he is. Why? Because of what he's done in worthless, no good, rotten sinners through his son, Jesus Christ, to produce in us this. This Christ-like character. This Christ-like faith. This hope in a living Savior. 
Because the process of salvation, what it, what it ends up as, is something far greater than we can ever hope to accomplish on our own in this life. It's something only God can do. And so when that is revealed, when Christ comes again, and the fruits of our salvation are evident to ourselves, to the church, to the world, who's glorified? Well, the only one who could have ever done that in the first place. The reason we can rejoice in suffering is because the permanence of our living hope outweighs temporary trials. Endurance with hope leads to this pure and valuable faith. Third, we can rejoice even in suffering because this living hope, this faith that is produced in us, it reminds us of the giver of our hope. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is what? The salvation of your souls. Enduring with suffering in this way, that the production of genuine faith in us through suffering, through difficulty, through trials, reminds us of the giver of our hope. And we know that the giver of our hope is ultimately Christ. We see that in verses 7 and 8. It's clear from these verses that, that the believers that Peter is writing to are likely not of the first generation of Christians. Right? It's some 30 years after Christ has been resurrected. And in 30 years, a lot of things can, can happen. And so it's probably the second, maybe even third generation of, of Christians post-resurrection. Neither are, are these Christians of those who knew Christ when he was alive. 30 years later, there's new people on the scene, right? 30 years later, Peter's 30 years older, even if he was relatively young at the resurrection, maybe in his mid-20s, he's now in his mid-50s. And in those days, you were lucky if you lived to see your mid-50s. So he's at the end of, of probably his life or getting close to it. So he's writing to people who have not seen Christ, who haven't known Christ personally. And he says, even though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Even knowing and loving Christ by faith only and not by sight. Creates an inexpressible and glorious joy in the life of the believer. How can this be so? How, how is that possible? How can, how can somebody who's not ever seen Jesus know this joy, know this hope, know this security, if they've not ever seen the man who's purchased it for us? Well, the apostle, the disciple John, has an answer for us in John chapter 20, near the end of his gospel, verses uh, 29 and, and following. This is after Christ has been uh, raised from the dead and he's appeared to the disciples once. The first time he appeared, uh, Thomas uh, was not there. And what do we all know, know Thomas for? He was a doubter, right? And so Jesus appears to the disciples a second time about a week later. And this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus appears and, and he says, um, uh, he says, peace be with you. And they said to Thomas, look, put your, well, uh, excuse me, let, let me, let me back up. Uh, verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That is the first time. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, place my finger in the mark of, mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas says. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but 
Believe. You've seen it now, Thomas. Believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He worships Jesus for who he rightly is, Lord and God. But then Jesus says something else. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That, that word blessed is the, the Greek word makarios. It means happy. It means full. It means completed, right? It means, it means filled with all that God intends for us. Real joy, real lasting joys. What we experience when we believe in Christ, even though we have not seen him. And here Peter is saying to, to the church, a generation of Christians who has not seen Christ. He says what? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory. Christian today, 2,000 years later, we're not all that different from the, from the Christian that Peter is writing to. We've not seen the Lord with our eyes. And we've not touched him with our hands. We've not walked with him through the, through the desert and the Judean countryside. right? But, but we have seen him. We've seen him by faith. And by faith in him, we come to know him. And by knowing him, we love him. And in loving him, we grow in closer relationship with him. And that living hope which he has purchased for us in his death and resurrection is imparted to us. And it never leaves. It only grows. It only grows. This is what John writes at the end of chapter 20 in his gospel. He says, Jesus did many... This is right after he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. He says, but these are written. This is the purpose John wrote his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, the disciple, knows that even those who do not see Christ but have faith in Christ, who know that Jesus is the Son of God, know what he's purchased for them on Calvary and in his resurrection, those who know him by faith will love him and have life in his name, eternal life, a living hope like Peter says. The reason we can rejoice in suffering is because it reminds us of the giver of our, our hope. But lastly, we can, we can rejoice in suffering. We can rejoice in trial. We can rejoice in persecution. We can rejoice in the darkest, most difficult valleys that this life has to offer. Because in doing so, in, in enduring with faith, we are pointed to the final outcome of our faith. In enduring by trusting Jesus, we know, we see, we look forward to the final outcome which is not our death, which is not sickness, which is not poverty, which is not destitution, which is not homelessness. No, our final destiny, our final outcome, the final uh, result of our hope is what? Salvation. Verse 9. Well, let me back up and read verse 8 just to complete Peter's thought. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the one thing we all need most, to be right with the God who has created us. The outcome of our faith is, is salvation, past, present, and future. How can this be true, both in the present moment of faith and, and yet in the future? How can we receive the, the full outcome of salvation both now in this moment and in the future? Don't, don't I either get it all now or all then? Well, yes and no, right? Yes, you do get all of salvation now. Those of, you who are, those of us who are in faith in Christ, trusting in Jesus for salvation, are no more, no less saved than we ever will be. You are as saved as you can ever get. Your salvation is as secure. It is though that in the midst of the storm, that rescue swimmer has jumped out of that perfectly good helicopter and is with you in the storm. You are safe. 
You will live. You will be all right. But there's a sense in which our salvation is not yet fully complete. Even though it is absolutely perfect, it is absolutely secure, there's a sense in which it still yet has to reach its climax, its full uh, completion. And that is in the resurrection. That is when Christ comes again. That is when we are living for eternity in the presence of Christ, our Savior. It is that moment when, though we've been in the water with the rescue swimmer for some hours, the basket from the helicopter is finally lowered into the water and we climb in and you hear the gears whir and the the motor turn on and the slack in the line is caught up and the basket rises up out of the water. And all of a sudden below you, you you have now left behind the torrential waves and, and the winds and the storm and you are now safe in the basket being carried to a salvation that is that that is no less secure than, than where you were before with that rescue swimmer. Your life is still secure in that sense, but now it's all the more secure because you're leaving all that suffering. You're leaving the trouble. You're leaving the torment. We are leaving the brokenness of this world behind in that final salvation. That's the outcome of our faith. That's why we endure in the midst of the storm, in the midst of this life, with hope. Why? Because the basket's coming. Right? What's the the point of this? Stephen, how how does that help me at work this week? It might not. But I think it does. In the midst of whatever challenge, in the midst of whatever trial or persecution you are facing now or may potentially one day face, you can have confidence, real confidence, to the point of rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible, Peter says, that he who has begun a good work in you through faith is being faithful to complete it, not in spite of the trials that we might face, but through the trials that we face. We can welcome insecurity and danger and trial and persecution with open arms. Why? Because it's a gift of God. And we can do this knowing that as we struggle and as we suffer with our eyes set on Christ and our hope alive in a risen Savior, He, God, is doing something wonderful in us. He's producing something in us. There is no pure gold without the fire, without the crucible. There's no pure faith without the crucible of a life with suffering and trial and challenge marked by the results of sin and death all around us. He is using that suffering to draw us, to draw you to draw me into an ever closer relationship with him. He is causing us to trust him more, to believe him more, to know and to share in the suffering of Christ more so that we might be more like Jesus. So we might know the father better like Jesus knew the father. But more than that, he does this in us, bringing us closer in our knowledge and our love and our trust of Christ. So that the moment of our death or at the moment of Christ's second coming, whichever comes first, God would receive the glory. God would receive the praise. God would receive the acclamation and the adoration that he is infinitely and eternally worthy of. See, Christian, your suffering really isn't all about you. It's not about you. The the financial difficulties you face today, they're not really about you. The, The difficulties you have in relationships in your family today, they're not really about you. The persecution that Christians are facing around the world in the Middle East and in Asia, it's not really about them. All the suffering, trial, 
challenge, persecution, opposition in this life. It's all about God and what he desires to do in you, in the power of Christ, through faith in him. It's it's really easy in our pitiable state, even when we're trusting in Christ, to throw ourselves a pity party. Isn't it? Woe is me, and I don't have what I want. This isn't easy. Raising kids is harder than I bargained for. My car broke down again. I'm having trouble making my mortgage. Woe is me. Woe is me. Take that pity party to the face of Christ at the foot of the cross at Calvary and see what that's worth. Right? Not much. Not much. Because look, when, when we die... The mortgage payment won't have to be paid anymore, right? right? You don't have to worry about raising your kids anymore. You don't have to worry about getting food in your stomach and all of that stuff. At the end of the day, when you die, what's the one thing that, that should be of greatest concern? How will you stand? What will you say before the God who created you? The, the perfectly, eternally, holy, just, good, loving, merciful God. What answer will we give for our sin? What answer will we give for what we've done in this life, whether it, was, whether it was by our own choosing or not? Throwing a pity party in the face of Christ, a pity party at the foot of the cross, a pity party at the gates of heaven won't get us any more secure. Rather, we need to change a perspective. We need, not to, to, we need to not view the trials of this life as things which are the most important but rather view them through the scope, through the, the, the broad scope of eternity and see that what we face today will not last forever and that what we face today is preparing something in us, doing something in us with our heart, with our life, with our, our relationship with Christ that will last forever. Because Christ has already faced and, and overcome the greatest threat to our security and spiritual well-being, We have the option not to recoil in the face of suffering, not to have pity for ourselves in the face of suffering, but to rejoice. Because as we suffer with faith in Christ, God demonstrates to not just us, not just to people, not just to the the cosmos. God demonstrates to all that he has created his glory in the Christ-like transformation of his saints. God is glorified in what we are transformed into by faith in Jesus. As we walk through these trials, as we are sitting in the crucible of life, as it were, the end result is our salvation. The end result is our our closeness with the God who created us. The end result is God's glory in us, through us, to the world, to the cosmos, for all eternity. Praise God. Well, we live in uncertain times, don't we? We might. That might be true. There's never been a time in history that's not been uncertain, that's, that's not been fraught with difficulty and challenge. But there has, through all eternity and through all history, and especially now, been, been a God who's desiring to do something in you, something with you, that, that is far greater than anything we can imagine this, in this life. A God who desires to save you from your perilous situation. 
And not just save you so you'll be safe, but save you so you'll have a hope. A hope that endures. A hope that lives. Why? Because the Savior who gave His life to purchase that forgiveness, to purchase that salvation, to to rescue you from peril, because He's not dead, He's alive. And because He is alive, we have assurance that we will also be alive. And in the scope of eternity, 5, 10, 30, 50 years 80 years of of, of trial, of suffering, of torment, maybe of persecution, a martyrdom at the hands of unbelievers in this world is endurable. We can persevere. We 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 can look the devil in the face and laugh at him knowing that the worst he can do is kill this body. But on the other side, we have we have a God who stands to resurrect this body. To never be destroyed again, right? And to live with Him for eternity. Not for 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 years. Not for 3 trillion years. But 3 trillions of trillions of trillions of years. And then some. I'm not good at math. Right? That's a hope to believe in. That's a hope to hold on to. That's a hope that doesn't fade when stuff rusts and and falls apart. That's a hope that gets you through today. And that's a hope that gets you through your worst day. If you don't know that hope today, if you don't have that sense of security, even in the midst of of the worst that this world can throw at you, it may be be possible, it may be true that you do not know Christ. It may be possible you've never really trusted in Jesus. You, You may have been in church your whole life and you still suffer from insecurity over money and finances and, 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 and the future and children and family relationships, you might still know, not know what to do in this life, not know where to look to for hope. And if that's the case, even though you've been in a church, you've been in church for a long time, maybe you walked down an aisle, maybe you prayed a prayer, maybe you sat down with a pastor in his office who were baptized one day, but maybe you never really truly trusted Christ. Because tr- trusting Trusting Jesus is, is not about the external things that we do. It's not about the going to church. It's not about the walking down an aisle. It's not about the praying a prayer with the pastor. All those, those, those things are, are important. Those are good things. Those are good steps in salvation. Uh, baptism is a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus is a good thing. But if you've not ever really trusted Jesus, you're just taking a short walk and getting wet. Right? So even if you would call yourself a believer, but you still suffer from insecurity, you you still don't know what to do day to day. The threat of of persecution for being called a Christian terrifies you and freezes you in your tracks. It It may be that you've never really trusted Christ. Because a hope, a living hope, that is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, it doesn't shake in the face of fear. It doesn't shake in the face of terrorism or, or, or persecution or opposition or even financial, financial uncertainty. Real hope, a living hope in Christ shakes never. And we deal with, we persevere, we strive through with that which God has given to us in this life, which is difficult because we know that he's using it to refine us. He's using it to make us more like Christ. And it's hard and we might be frustrated Right? We might not know. We might not know what tomorrow brings. We live in uncertain times, right? But but we have a certain Savior, and we have a certain hope in the midst of uncertain times. If you've never trusted Jesus, you don't have that kind of certainty in your life, even in the midst of all that this world throws at you, may throw at you. I, I would encourage you. I would implore you to to seek Christ out today. 
find Christ today. Know him as your savior today. Place trust in him for the first time this day. Because no one knows what tomorrow brings, but I know what eternity has in store for me in Christ. And it's my desire that we all share that sense of security in our relationship with God, a right relationship with God, no longer separated by our sin, but made right with him, united with him through his son, Jesus Christ. The one who saves us in the midst of the storm and who will one day save us completely perfectly from the storm. Will you bow with me this morning?